With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021, and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelfy episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfie. I'm Yomi Adegoke and I'm absolutely thrilled to be your host for series three, where I'll be lucky enough to be interviewing some incredible women about the work of other incredible women. Let me start by reminding you that this year's long list is out and the 16 brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website, womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. We are still practicing safe social distancing and this podcast is being recorded remotely. Today's guest is stand-up comedian, podcaster and screenwriter Deborah Francis-White. Deborah is the host of the Guilty Feminist podcast, which launched in 2015 and amassed a cult following for its sideways, honest look at feminism that's kept it in the charts ever since. Pre-COVID, the podcast was recorded in front of a live audience, selling out gigs at the London Palladium and the Barbican. It's also been made into a best-selling book. And whilst this is impressive enough, it's actually just a small notch in the enormous bedpost of Deborah CV, which includes various other podcasts, radio series, TV panel show appearances, stand-up comedy and writing for TV, film and print. Her solo shows have included Half a Can of Worms, which tackled the issue of her own adoption as a newborn baby and what it was like to eventually meet her biological family, and Cult Following, which told the story of her family's conversion to Jehovah's Witnesses when she was a teenager. She's also co-written two books on stand-up comedy and her debut feature film, Say My Name, was released in 2019. Welcome, Deborah. How are you doing? Well, do you know what? I find lockdown goes up and down. I find sometimes I'm full of energy and I think this is actually good because it's make, making me stay home and I can get things done and I'm, I can rest my body from racing around the world and doing all the things I used to do. And there are other times when I actually feel like I might have disappeared and maybe I don't <laughs> exist anymore. And I think I miss my audience so much now because this is a year now. This time last year, mm. I was on tour in Australia and New Zealand. We were paying, playing huge venues. We, It was like l- virtually a year to, to the day ago that I played this huge, you know, couple of thousand seats in Sydney, a, a venue called the Enmore uh, Theatre. And I, it was hysterical with guilty feminist fans, listeners who come out to see us when we go to Australia. And when Cal Wilson and I introduced our guest, because it was a surprise who the guest was, I started with the most vague thing in her CV and worked my way up to uh, prime, the former Prime Minister of Australia. And they were so ballistic by the time we got there, they couldn't even hear me say her name. They, it was hysteric. It was hysteria. Then we went to New Zealand. We played the Wellington Arena, which I'd never even been to Wellington. And it was full like thousands of people and it's just it that's a year ago now and so Mm. that they were these sort of from last international women's day to this international women's day I really haven't been on stage and had that connection with the audience and that felt that frenetic energy so books I think are one way of finding that connection with other people, mm-hmm. if you're not allowed to sit with your friends and put the world to rights, if you're not allowed to sit in a crowded cafe and overhear other people's conversations on a first date or in a business meeting, and you're not allowed to play the Wellington Arena, um, <laughs> then books are a great way <laughs> of reminding yourself that other people feel your feelings. And you know, we read to know that we are not alone, as the saying goes. Have you been reading? And also, do you consider yourself a big reader? I was an obsessive reader as a child. And my favourite thing was to go to the library and get a lot of new books. And then, you know, I was one of those kids who'd have a torch under the covers when I was meant to be asleep. My sister would say <laughs> on the weekend, oh, let's run around outside in the garden and play a game and let's do a, you know, she had a wild adventures planned. And I would be like, oh, I've just, I've just got to finish this book, sorry. And just nothing made me happier. And then I read English at Oxford And there was a lot of reading, as you can imagine. And I had to read a lot of fiction um, at Oxford. 
and uh, I loved it. I really did love it. Uh, but I think, and I, and I really loved learning to analyze and critique and discuss books. Uh, it made me very happy. But I think post Oxford, I think I'd, I then got into doing. I wanted to do comedy, and I wanted to uh, be making shows and going here and going there. And I, I think I lost my habit for reading quite so religiously when smartphones took over as well. Um, mm. And I read my phone far too much. And so uh, Tom, my husband, who also produces the Guilty Feminist podcast, has said this year he's making a a goal uh, for the number of books he's going to read because he used to be such... My God, Tom could read. Tom reads much faster than I do. So he would constantly have two books on the go and he would just eat them up. And he said, God, I lie in bed at night, you know, on my on my iPad looking at nonsense and I'm going to get back into that. So this year we've both got a news resolution to read more. I mean, that's quite cute, actually, co-resolutions for a start. But I think also a lot of people can relate to the idea of reading their phone instead of books. Um, I most certainly can. So I'd like you to complete the sentence riffing off of your wonderful podcast. I'm a reader. But... Oh, I'm a reader, but the book I've read most often in the last five years has been Facebook. <laughs> the stories I enjoy most are Instagram stories. <laughs> but um, it's true, though. That's what passes for stories now. It's not a story. Stop calling it a story. It's just a picture of you <laughs> pouting with your abs out. That's not a story. I'm not talking to you, Yomi. I'm not saying you post that content. And if you do, I'm, <laughs> I mean, well, I don't have abs. I'm delighted but... <laughs> if you do post that content. But um, it's more Instagram stories. And if anyone doesn't know what they are, they're just like little uh, images or videos that you can f- flick through. Um, they're re- it's really the story of that person and often that person's ego. <laughs> I include myself in mm. this. I'm not exempt. <laughs> but I think we need to get back to the idea of what story really is because I think story is incredibly powerful. I was talking to Hannah Gadsby recently, um, who many of you will know from her brilliant show, Nanette. And um, she said, story holds our cure. And I think that's absolutely right. We've all learned to empathise mm. with uh, a, a very small band of viewpoints because of the stories we've consumed, especially the ones that Hollywood has pumped out over the last hundred years. The viewpoint is the same viewpoint over and over and over again. Uh, in Hollywood, it tends to be a uh, a middle-class uh, white man uh, it tends to be a straight man and and his angst is explored again and again and again. So whether he's the president of the United States, whether he's mm. a serial killer, whether he's um, a, a schlubby guy who can't get a job, it, it tends to be the same viewpoint over and over and over again. And one Christmas, uh, Susan McComa came to spend Christmas with us, who's uh, a mutual friend of ours, oh. and we watched mm. It's a Wonderful Life Um and if you're very young, you may not know that the story of It's a Wonderful Life is it's about a, a, a character called George, who's played by James Stewart, a film star from the 40s and 50s. And he uh, feels so desperate that he, nothing's gone right in his life. And he what's what's been the point of his life? And he goes to jump off a bridge. And it's at that point, an angel appears to him and shows him what his life would have been and shows him and shows him what the world would have been like without him in it. So shows him the fact that when his brother um, fell through the ice as a child. If he hadn't been there to rescue him, he would have died. And that would have meant uh, these consequences and so on and so on and so on. And how how much he's mm. changed the world and impacted his part of the world and how much he means to people. And it's a very beautiful story. It's very sad and it's also very joyful at the end. And I was sitting next to Susie and she was crying. We were all crying, but she was crying. And I just looked over at her and I thought, when when does a white man ever sit and look through the eyes of a black woman at mm. Christmas and cry and empathise? Like never, literally never. Mm. If a white man were watching a movie about a black woman at Christmas, it would be a sort of, oh, I'm watching this other thing. I'm watching something kind of exotic mm. or interesting or different or look at me, uh, look at my diversity points, you know. It, it And it would still be, an because it's not so common, it would still be an other experience. It would be like, oh... That's what she's going through. But he's not invited yeah. constantly to imagine a black woman as an every person. 
Whereas mm. black women are invited all the time to see, to, to filter their own experiences through white men and see a white man as an every person. And, and we all have, we absolutely all have. So, um, uh, the the fact that we do empathise constantly in our society with and the, and the news stories empathise constantly if a young white man is caught you know shooting people it's like oh has he had a troubled past mm. what's his backstory because in a movie his backstory would be explored absolutely um, and so that's why Hannah says story holds our cure because the more absolutely. that we can watch stories from varying viewpoints and through the eyes of different sorts of human beings, the more that we will see humanity in people and not just identity. We are now going to your first bookshelfie, which is Underfoot in Show Business by Helene Han. Oh. Can you tell me what this book is about? Okay, so it's a memoir of a writer called Helene Hanif, who uh, was underfoot in show business uh, in the 40s. It on, she was basically moved to Broadway as a young playwright. And she came from a small town in America. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't particularly pretty. Her clothes didn't quite work, you know, all of that sort of mm. stuff. But she turns up to have a go at it. Now, most people, if they know Helene Hanif, know her from a book called 84 Charing Cross Road, which was made into a film with Anthony Hopkins and Annette Bening. And it was about her relationship with a, a, a very British bookseller and who she would write to and say, have you got this book or have you got this book? Because we can't get it in New York. And he would write back uh, because they didn't have Amazon then or any kind of a bookseller that would just deliver books to your door and they struck up a friendship. And so that's how she's best known. But I love her book Underfoot in Show Business because it really inspired me to go and have a go at things, to leave my hometown and to turn up somewhere new and introduce yourself and think you could, ha you could make it, to have the audacity to have a go at making it in show business. And she tells all these just glorious, wonderful stories. She's a brilliant storyteller. In a way, she's my best role model because she doesn't really make it as a playwright, but she lives a life having goes at making it as a playwright. And she ultimately makes it having written a book, which gets turned into a play, uh, which then gets turned into a film. So, you know, there are, there are many routes for people. And her story is not one of great success her story is one of great effort and joy in that effort and all of the wonderful funny things that happen to you along the way and the people you meet it's a celebration of a life well lived doing the thing you want to do and not allowing success to be your metric seeing life as a success if you are in the game this book contains just some glorious stories uh one that uh, Helene Hanif was picked for a play scholarship and the previous year they'd picked two playwrights had just given them $1,500 each and said, which is a lot of money back then, and said, off you go, write some plays. And then they thought, well, this isn't very good. So we should put them through a program, give them mentors, uh, send them on a workshop writing course, you know, like really help them. And of the 12 people they chose to do that to uh, that year, one became a screenwriter, you know, uh, lots of them dropped out, became different things. Uh, some of them had success writing, but none of them were Broadway, Broadway playwrights. The year before, including Helene Hanif um, herself, uh, the year before the two people they'd given the money to who'd wandered off on their own were Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. <laughs> and wow. she was like, so that's the value of education. Uh, there's a brilliant chapter called If They Take You to Lunch, They Don't Want Your Play. As somebody who's been in show business a long time and had a lot of those experiences, you really relate to her constant struggles, but also the way that she finds ways to make those struggles in themselves funny and, and a life worth living. Mm. One of my favourite things that she taught me when I was a young Jehovah's Witness who had no hope of getting out of the beach town I was in in Australia, 
uh, was that they don't check your tickets at the interval or an intermission, as they say on Broadway. So when she was young and on Broadway and wanted to see lots of plays, she couldn't afford to. But she realised that if you could find out just before curtain went up, if there were any tickets available uh, at interval, you could just turn up on the street where, where all the smokers were outside and then just go back in with them and look around and find an empty seat. Um, so I, when I first came to London, to the West End, and I was temping, I did that all the time. I did it every night. So you'd see the second act of everything. And she always said, don't take your coat because she always caught colds because they would see if you were coming in with a coat uh, that you that, uh, that you weren't one of the, the New Yorkers who always left their coats inside, clever. probably at the coat check. But I did. I didn't, I didn't worry about that. Um, but one night... Uh, I tried the Helene Hanoff uh, method of sneaking in at the interval uh, to see Deflated Mouse at the E&O and there were no seats. I'd done it. I'd done it properly. There were no seats. About- and I thought, okay, always go towards <laughs> the authorities. If you scurry off, you're going to look like you're, you're, you're dodgy here. So, <laughs> so I walked up to the usher and went, oh, excuse me, I really need to use the ladies' room. Is there time before the curtain goes up for the second act? And he went, oh, not really. But look, go to the loo. Um and then I'll have to put you in a private box oh so you don't disturb God. anyone else. So I went to the loo, just came, went and stood there for a bit, came back out, and he put me in a private box. And I remembered I had some grapes from the temping agency, and I sat and watched the second and third acts of Deflader Mouse like a queen in a private <laughs> box eating grapes. Um, and I put that story into my film, Say My Name. So... <laughs> I've got so much to thank Helene Hanna for, and I really recommend this as a charming book uh, for if you don't feel you're winning, and I don't think anyone feels like they're winning, particularly in 2020 and 2021, read this book and it will make you feel part of the action is what's important. Be in the game is what's important. You don't have to be Arthur Miller or Tennessee Williams. You have to just be in the game. What a flipping anecdote. I'm just like, the way I'd have just panicked and absolutely <laughs> ran out of there, probably been chased up the road. It might be a story of white privilege, I I. I'm potentially to be fair it might be but I do recommend you don't want to run away from the usher if you're going to try this technique and look honestly I don't see there's any harm in it if those seats are just sitting there empty young people might as well have them I think theatres should say look if you're if you can prove you're a student or unemployed just come and come and we'll tell you when the second act starts and you can fill the seats even yeah. I think they should have like a little five minute break. If people aren't sitting in those seats, I just think people should be allowed to. You're not costing the production anything. And listen, now that I can afford tickets, I buy them. So before we move on to your second bookshelfie, white privilege aside, which is quite big. It's <laughs> I quite mean, a I'm big sorry. aside. I'm sorry. It's true, though. It, you know, is, let true. Me like it is true. Struggle uh, to lift it up and put it to one, you know, into one corner. That side it is quite brave and certainly characteristic of you to have the balls to go up to an usher and sort of say you know I'm the aggrieved party here I need a wee and you know I'm gonna go get put in a private box um so I can watch the remainder of this you know show I shouldn't actually technically be in so I'm very interested if you've always been an extroverted person um and as a kid especially with you know your upbringing and your childhood and your teenage years and, and how specific they were and how and how unique they were I'm quite interested in what kind of personality type you had so I was always the outgoing one in our family. And I explored this in my show, uh, uh, Half a Can of Worms, that was got turned into a Radio 4 show called Deborah Francis White Rolls the Dice, about finding my biological family, that my sister was four years older and very shy. And so even though she was much older than me, four years older than me, she would be the one to say, you go and get the ice cream from the ice cream van, you're the outgoing one. And I actually, looking back, don't know if perhaps I was manipulated into having an outgoing personality by my sister, because that is the kind of thing she would do. Go, you're the outgoing one. Why don't you go and ask that person the time? Um, <laughs> it's possible I was just I was just told I was the outgoing one, but I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is my first performance uh, was my nursery school end of year show. I was a horse. Uh, don't mean to brag. Uh, fourth, fourth horse in the parade of horses and we had to do this little horsey dance which was a bit like gangham style only in white onesies and just prancing prancing and I can remember it clear as day I remember the response of the audience I remember the audience cheering and clapping the way they do for small children and I remember all of the other little horses dancing away and I remember thinking well this audience is not done with this dance (laughs) 
and they're not done with me. So I danced on and the audience clapped more and I danced on and the audience laughed more and I danced on and the, and the teacher had to come and lead me away. And that story was legendary in our family because no one else would have done that. I was the performer. And when I found my biological family, at first it wasn't clear to me why. You know, you're looking for these traits that you have. I always wanted to live in London from the time I could read books, which was very young because I could read before I went to school. And uh, and that's I think it was just because that was where the stories were set. All of the mm-hmm. stories in my books in Australia were in my beach town. Australia were set in London and the children had coats and there was snow, which there is at the moment, uh, which we didn't have. I didn't I only had a cardigan in my childhood. I never had a coat. And it's not because we were um, we were poor. We, were, we weren't rich, but we weren't poor. It was because the temperature never moved to coat weather. I had a cardigan. That's what I had. You had one cardigan wow. when it got a bit chilly, <laughs> pop a cardi on. Um, but most of it was very hot. And so I wanted to be where the seasons were. And I, I just loved all these stories and desperately wanted to live in London. And I really wanted to be a performer. And so those were the things I was looking for when I found my biological mother. And they weren't immediately apparent, but it turned out that my, um, my great uh, grandmother had been in vaudeville in music hall. She was a comedian mm. with her sister, Lucy. Oh, wow. And my great grandfather was, I think he was, he was posh. He was from Devon. He was in the Navy and he was what they called a stage door Johnny. Then that meant young men that would come to the stage door to try and pick up the dancers and the, and the acts and the comics. And uh, he came and, you know, chatted up Hetty at the door, Charles. And uh, he, uh, he got more than he bargained for because they ended up having five children. And oh, one wow. of the children was asthmatic. And in those days, there was no Ventolin. They just said, go to a hot climate. And so they got on a boat and went to Australia. And they tried oh, to set up a gosh. dairy farm in Queensland, um, which was an absolute, you know, as you can imagine. I mean, it was a showgirl and a, and a naval officer trying to set up a dairy farm. We lost all their money. Uh, but never came back to London. But their eldest daughter, Eulalia, she missed London so much uh, that she tried to walk back. She got her doll and walked down these train tracks in the because they were right on the bush. And she just realised about an hour and a half in that if she didn't walk back, she was going to die in the bush. So she walked back and no one had missed her. So I always think that I, I got back. Eulalia died before I found the family. But uh, I always think I got back to London for Eulalia. And mm-hmm. and and for Hetty, who had been a performer, and her sister Lucy, when they split up the double act, um, Lucy became a solo comedian. And I've I've seen all the re- like reviews and and uh, letters from her talking about booking gigs um, on the census every four years. She's always in different digs because she's on tour. Always mm-hmm. says she's twenty three, no matter what the year is. <laughs> she's always twenty three. Show business hasn't changed for women at all, has it? <laughs> Uh, and, uh, so, so yeah, I sort of found those roots in myself. So I think, yes, I had a genetic disposition to being outgoing and to be the kind of person who would, who would wander into a show and go, I'm sure my seat's here somewhere. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and just blag it a bit. Yeah, I do think that. So your second book, Shelby, is The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Tell me oh. a bit about this book and also yes. why it makes you say, ugh. Okay, so The Mill on the Floss, I remember finishing it on a tube station platform because I got off the tube and I was so compelled I couldn't leave without finishing it. It was Holland Park. I was a nanny at the time. And I sat down on a bench in Holland Park tube station, finished it and wept on my own. I was so broken by this book. I was like, well, this book's clearly ruined my life. Do you ever feel like that? Like a book's ruined your life? I mean, it, ha- it hasn't, just to be clear. Just in that <laughs> of moment. Of course, I was but like, in that moment, you're kind of con- considering whether it has. I definitely have been devastated and crestfallen by, it's usually endings. And that's not always because they're sad. That's sometimes because I'm like, I didn't want it to end that way. So I'm super interested in what happened here that made you feel like your life in those moments was done for well I mean it's I won't spoil the ending for the listeners because they might not have read it but it's about a young woman in the 19th century her name is Marianne and she falls in love and she is constrained by the values and the power structures of her time Um, and I remember when I went to Oxford I studied it and the other young women in my uh, tutor group 
when we were discussing it, couldn't understand why she just hadn't run off with him. And they end up unchaperoned and they can go on or they can and quickly get married or they can come back. They haven't done anything. They haven't had sex or anything. But just the fact you're alone with a man unchaperoned means you're disgraced now. But she can't do it. She Her conscience makes her come back and she's a social pariah. She gets shunned. Now, I used to be a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, when you leave that organization, you get shunned. So I understood it entirely. I understood it was a matter of conscience because I'd been in a religion that was a high control group and it was controlled entirely by men. And I understood in absolutely what it was to be a, a 19th century uh, heroine in a book. I absolutely got it. I was like, no, because your conscience tells you, you must not do this. And so you made all sorts of sacrifices as a young Jehovah's Witness and you know, you would go and hand yourself into the elders if you'd done something wrong. You would be encouraged to tell on other young women who you worried were straying from a spiritual path. Um, and you would, of course, subject yourself to shunning if your conscience was telling you that that's what you needed because that was discipline from Jehovah. So I remember being the only one in my tutor group who actually could understand this character because they were all just, just take off. Who cares what these guys think? And I was like, mm, no, you can't. You can't do that because your relationship is with God and the power structures are there for a reason uh, to protect you, but also because right is right and moral is moral. And it was a real epiphany for me when everyone else didn't understand it, that I had been in a cult. This book really made me realize it. I was like, oh, you've been in a cult. And the thing is, every generation is its own cult in a weird way. Every generation has its own social mores, its own ways of operating, the things we do, the things we don't do, the things we do in public, the things we do in private, the things we admit we do, the things we don't admit we do. And if you read books from the past, you realize you're in your 21st century cult and they are all in their 20, early 20th century cult or their Victorian cult or their restoration cult. Um, if you are out of step with your generation, you are said to be in a cult. So if you're an Amish person in 2021, you're in a cult, right? You're in a, you're in a high control group. You're in a sect because you're out of step with your generation. But the way the Amish people live now, well, people did live like that hundreds of years ago, and that was normal. It wasn't a cult at all. So it really made me understand the rules of a high control group. And we're all in one now. We're absolutely all in one. There are things we do, the things we don't do, things we'd say, the things we wouldn't say. The ending of this story is deeply tragic. And I think it's almost like a, it's a morality tale, really, uh, about obeying the men and the power structures that have been set out for you at any cost, I think. And something that you said that really I find, I mean, yeah, super interesting is just that idea of that sort of tussle with morality and and what you should be doing according to your cult of the time, or in your case, you know, with your Jehovah's Witness upbringing and the sort of guilt that came with that when you decided that, you know, you were going to go your own way. And I'm interested in if you have ever still have those feelings of, I suppose, guilt or residual guilt or because you know these these ideas and ideologies are very much sort of you know especially you know do you say a religion like jehovah's wait i'm trying to work out how you sorry characterize uh, jehovah's some, witnesses some people would say a religion like jehovah's witnesses for, for me i think it is a religion but i i for me it's a it's a cult because um the reason i call it a cult is i think a useful definition of a cult is uh a, an organization that that or a group that won't let you leave with your dignity intact. Mm. If you can't get out of it, if you can't say, guys, this has been fun, but I'm off. Mm. And they, if they won't say we wish you well and we'll see you around, then, uh, or, or we'll help you move on to the next phase of your life, that's an issue for me. Right. And that's a cult. Uh, it's a high control group. So I personally uh, f uh, see it as a, uh, most people who've left, um, we we'll see, we'll see it as a cult, yeah, because of the cult. shunning. The sh there's right. the the rules. If you were a Jehovah's Witness, you cannot have friends who aren't Jehovah's Witnesses, mm. and you'll get in trouble if you do, and you could be disfellowshipped if you um if you and shunned if you continue to associate with people who are said to be worldly. Mm. Um, and the punishment for leaving is shunning, and that leaves you completely alone. So I didn't have any friends at all when I left. Mm. Um. Now, I wasn't formally disfellowshipped, but it's effectively the same. So I didn't see anyone, apart from the family I nannied for when I left, I didn't see anyone all weekend. I didn't see anyone. And I'd go to an improv class during the week and sometimes someone from the improv class, I'd say, oh, should we have a drink on the weekend? But if that person cancelled, 
I wouldn't see anybody because the family mm. would go away on the weekend. So I wouldn't speak to a single soul for 48 hours because I just, you've lo- you lost, when I joined it when I was 14, you you lose all your school friends. You can't associate with them anymore, really. So you don't have any old friends. I was in London. Um, you you have to just make every new friend from scratch. So it's, mm. you know, it's a it's a traumatizing thing. And I and I so I absolutely understand why Marianne from The Mill on the Floss didn't feel she could just go, yeah, I'll, mm. you know, I'll start over. It's uh at least I had the world to go into. I had the world to go into. There's mm. there's nowhere to go into if that's the rules of the whole yeah. society and that's that you, the world. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if the whole world was Jehovah's Witnesses. Then where do you? Of course I would be still conforming. Of course mm. I would, because where else would I be? There's, you know, you then you, there, or I would have to have the strength of character to build a counterculture to it. Maybe mm. I would have if I'd found other people, but, you know, who knows? Uh, men, men tended to more, you know, the romantics were tended mm. to be um, men who'd go, oh, let's go and build a commune in America, but, and we'll take some women. Uh, mm. but, uh, <laughs> uh, but if you're not the dominant, if you're, if you're not the apex predator, then in a very real way, are you going to be the one to start the counterculture? Uh, you know, I'm not saying mm. no women ever have, I'm saying no, it takes it an just... enormous amount of character to do it and to, and, and, and it's very risky. Um, so we all think we'd be the ones but exactly. not everyone would have been the ones. So I, I can't honestly hand on heart say, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I'd have done. Of course. So so speaking to that, I'm just interested in that idea of perhaps not now, but I suppose when you initially left, you know, whether you were still battling with those feelings of this is what I should be doing or this is what I shouldn't be doing and having that residual guilt over, over decisions that you made that were counter to, you know, what you were supposed to do as a Jehovah's Witness. I don't think so. I think at, I decided I wasn't ever going to go back to a meeting out of guilt if I didn't want to go and I never went again. And then I think I was pretty, I felt pretty free and liberated. I had to work out what I thought about the world. Now I'm a total atheist and I don't, I don't feel any guilt at all. I do know people who do. I do know people who still have these panic attacks or nighttime worries that Armageddon's going to come and they're in the wrong. But I don't believe any of it anymore. I don't mm. think, I don't feel guilty. In fact, I'll tell you what I do think you're me. You know, if if you and I in the old days before COVID would sometimes go out and you know have a have a a bit of a wild night out, mm. um, <laughs> uh, have a few drinks and dance at a few tables. Few. You know, you know, you remember one night we went, we ended up. We think we just bumped into each other in the street, and we ended up quite going to the Groucho Club because you'd <laughs> yeah. been offered some lifetime membership to the Groucho Club just for being special. So. In we went, and I remember I remember having a few drinks with you and Elizabeth and having a brilliant time. Now, I've got friends who, if they have a really wild night out, will wake up in the morning and they will it will remind them of their misspent youth and they'll feel really kind of guilty and embarrassed and ashamed. Mm. Do you know what I feel? I feel like, yes, definitely not a Jehovah's <laughs> Witness. I feel proud of myself if I have a wild night out. I feel elated. I feel it proves that I'm not who I was being molded to be. Mm. So I don't get any shame associated with youth because I didn't really have much of a youth. Mm. So uh, that's a, listen, this is a great advantage that I don't feel ashamed of a hangover. <laughs> these are the these are the paths left to travel by. You know, sometimes I mean. if you just get on that conveyor belt of school, uni, um, go get a job, you don't question anything. If you, you know, if something big happens to you, like you end up joining a cult when you're a teenager, you have to reassess everything. And it, there are advantages to it. it mm-hmm. I think it gave me my artist pass. I think it made me an artist because I, I was an outsider. I was an outsider in because I was a Jehovah's Witness. And then I was an outsider from that. Mm-hmm. And outsiders make great writers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just smiling at the fact that you're just waking up the next day thrilled to have a throbbing headache. Like, yes, father proof. That Come I am on, wrong. baby. Come on, Bring who did I snog last night? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. Would a Jehovah's oh. Witness do that? No, she'd be knocking on doors, getting a nice early night. What was I doing last night? It's not clear, but there's some photographs on Instagram that I'm going to have to ask someone to delete. Yeah, you do. Come on. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. 
Baileys is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Baileys is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. So your third book shall be... Is Song of Solomon by oh. excellent Tony Morrison. I love your visceral reactions to these books. Like, I can Nothing just hear hell. this is a good the, book. Do you know oh. what I mean? The thrill. Tell me when you first read it and what it's about. Okay, I I read it for Radio 4's Goodreads. Okay. Uh it was picked for me by somebody else, and I had to read it so I could discuss it. And I was like, where has Tony Morrison been all my life? Mm-hmm. This is absolutely the best book I've ever read. The prose are just, it's beyond anything else I've ever read. If you have not read any Toni Morrison, I am about to change your life. And I want you to tweet me at Deborah FW. Thank you. You've changed my life. Um, Now, many of the listeners will be like, Deborah, where were you before Radio 4 made you read this book? Um, And I will admit to you uh, that... Yes, I should have read this book before, but I hadn't. Um, It is an absolute world-opening book. It takes you into a place and a time that it's unlikely you're going to be familiar with. Um, 1930s America, and it's an incredible analysis of white supremacy and the forces at work amongst African-Americans to fight off the tyranny of white supremacy. The characters are so vivid, flawed and glorious. The prose is beyond anything I've ever uh, read before by anybody else. And it's no surprise why Toni Morrison has a Nobel Prize, basically. Absolutely. That's how I felt when I first read Love. And I just remember getting to the end of it and thinking, why am I writing again? Like, this is not the same thing that she was doing. Because she was doing something else entirely that is otherworldly on a completely different ancestral plane. And it just, I just remember going back to my <laughs> laptop and feeling inadequate, but also thoroughly inspired. inspired. Absolutely yeah. inspired. Because she's a black woman as well. It's incredible. Like, you know, I, I, it's so rare that I guess black art is given its credit in that way that, you know, a Nobel Prize, like, do you, do you get what I mean? It's just, it's never elevated to the level that it should be. Uh, yeah, I do think we should be inspired rather than, because she, Toni Morrison doesn't want to silence anybody's voice, especially any woman's voice, especially any black woman's voice. So I think allow it to inspire. And I think what we should be doing is reading Toni Morrison and then going to our laptops, not in any way to copy or to... No, uh, to, couldn't if we tried. <laughs> no, but but just to feel the spirit of her observation and her truth. It doesn't matter where I start reading. I will find something Impeccable. completely original and unique but entirely relatable and I think that's what's wonderful about it sometimes you read books by very very clever 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 men and you're like oh he's very good at writing isn't he (laughs) and it's all about admiring how clever he is with words but you're not alive inside of it you don't feel ignited in your bones because of it and with Toni Morrison it, it I feel like she takes me to a familiar window and shows me an entirely new view Thank you so much, Deb. Before we get to your next book, Shelfie, I would like to speak about white supremacy, which we've already sort of touched on. Um, but one of the best things I think about Morrison's work is how you come to our work and certain themes are discussed without you necessarily, I mean, obviously you're aware that they're being discussed, but it, it just feels 
massively poetic and effortless. It doesn't feel like you're reading a, I suppose, um, racism 101 textbook by any means. It's, 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 it's relatable in a way that even, I mean, as, as much as I am a black woman, I'm not an African-American woman. I'm not living throughout, you know, Jim Crow or anything. It's a very different experience. So I imagine I, when I speak to white people about her work, they often talk about it being their entry point into understanding or their, I guess, awakening in terms of racism and white supremacy and, and things like that. Now, I know that isn't the case for you, but I am interested in when I suppose the, you had a consciousness of the concept of white supremacy, because I think most people, even as children, despite privilege, still have an awareness of will have an awareness of racism, but not necessarily of white supremacy as a concept. So when did that sort of become something for you? I mean, I was at a very, very white town in Australia. I think there were there were a couple of Indigenous girls at my school, but there was nobody. There was nobody else. There was a couple of uh, Indigenous or mixed race uh, girls at my school. There was an Italian, a girl from an Italian family. Um, his surname was Camilleri. That was very exotic. A British girl turned up. Uh, her family had moved over from London. That was very glamorous. Um, other than that, it was local white Australians. And so, I mean, I'm literally talking about a girl with an Italian surname being being thought to be... <laughs> other, yeah. Yeah, oh, 100%. It's like, yeah, she's Italian. Her family's Italian. Now, of course, if you're living in Melbourne... Yeah, it's 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 very cosmopolitan. And the part of Australia I grew up in is much more cosmopolitan than it was. But when I grew up, honestly, I didn't have a great sense of the indigenous girls that I weren't in my year. So I didn't really know them. I don't know what their experience was like. It was probably bad. And I don't know that. And I don't remember that because I was a white child. Um, but I don't remember ever anybody bullying anybody or calling anybody names or I don't remember that being a part of my childhood I don't remember anyone using slurs um I remember I remember hearing as I got older adults talking about um uh indigenous people in places like Darwin and saying there was a lot of problem there with alcoholism and and uh, unemployment and violence and they were saying it in a way as if it were the indigenous people's fault and they weren't talking about it from the point of view of white supremacy power structures colonialism um the uh the the genocide that happened to indigenous people in australia they weren't talking about it like that at all they were basically saying that the aboriginal people were the problem and i remember that being something that i had to address in my own head and question but I was also from a very homophobic place where there were no out gay people um, in my school it was illegal to be gay in my state uh, in Australia it was any gay acts were illegal uh, so you know I was from a very white very seemingly straight because gay people were too frightened to be out and couldn't be out um, without risking prison I was I was raised there. So did I have a sense of white supremacy and power structures? Not at all. Hmm. We were trained that, um, you know, Australia Day was something to be proud of, all about Captain Cook um, coming over and discovering Australia. What a hero, what a legend. Uh, there was absolutely no discussion that uh, Indigenous people were gunned down, uh, that their children were taken away from them. It, it it wasn't it wasn't discussed or talked about and now i join with other australians in feeling great shame at the uh not only the history but also the contemporary um price that indigenous people pay every single day in australia mm -hmm. um for uh, the socioeconomic disposition that they have inherited and the continual um, criminalization and demoralization of the uh, the Australian indigenous community. I mean, it's really abusive and it's terrible. Mm -hmm. So um, now I have much more of an awareness of it, but I still, of course, and I, you know, I've really 
spent a lot of time on the podcast trying to make it a diverse space um, mm-hmm. where uh, black women and if I go to Australia, indigenous women it can be heard, um, brown women, uh, of course, but queer women. But uh, I am also aware that at the end of the day, I'm a mildly queer, tall, white woman from an English-speaking country who went to Oxford. And none of those things are going away. And so it is my responsibility and my job to be as much a part of the solution as I can be. But I also understand that those power structures benefit me every single day. So your fourth bookshelfie is Lullaby Beach by Stella Duffy. Can you tell me what you love most about this book and also where you were and when you first read it? Okay, so I read this book very recently. I was lucky enough to be sent a copy of it uh, before it came out. It's new. It's by a brilliant writer called Stella Duffy, who I actually know of old. And she has written a book about three generations of women, all from a seaside town. And it starts with a tragedy. So great niece Lucy finds Kitty dead and she's taken her own life at Lullaby Beach, uh, her home uh, for many years. So that's a bit of a content warning there that it does start with somebody taking their own life. Mm. Um, And the family can't believe that Kitty would do this. um, And they're like, why? Why would she do this? And in their efforts to understand they start to uncover her secrets and her life and the book goes to really explore kitty's life from when she leaves westmere as a young woman to go to london um and she's been living in the seaside town which feels claustrophobic and dull she wants to you know the thrill of the city relatable content for me And she thinks she meets the love of her life in a man called Danny, who's the son of a businessman. She thinks he's very fabulous. Um, But actually, he is uh, not a good man at all. And he's very ambitious, but he is abusive. This is the 50s, London in the 50s. And it's all very bright light. So if you're interested, I mean, I love, because I live in London, I love, I sometimes wander down the street and I think, gosh, during the Blitz, people would have run down there. People would have, yeah. you know, this this would have happened. In the 20s, people would have been coming out in these sorts of clothes. And, and it's we're all standing on the same street, which is one thing I love about London. I mean, probably I feel that because I'm from Australia where there isn't quite that same um, history in the same way. Uh, so she becomes friends with a young Jamaican woman uh, called Ernestine. And Danny does not like this. Um, so there is a there's so many brilliant themes in this. It's about the cycle of abuse. It's about women dealing with the same things in different generations. If you want to get a greater understanding of Windrush through fiction, through story, which is a wonderful way to do it, uh, this is a this is a brilliant book to read. Uh, there's all sorts of other things, you know, abortion and other things that, you know, Stella's such a feminist and such an intersectional feminist, there are all sorts of wonderful things explored that some of them are are harder material in terms of trauma. But the book is beautiful and layered and the, the characters come to life and it's a real page turner and there's a twist in the story. So I think sometimes exploring those harder topics, not always through nonfiction and plowing through those difficult topics that we think, oh God, I've got to look at this. I should look at this. I should know about this. I should educate myself. Mm -hmm. Coming through fiction and being caught up in a story is a great way sometimes to explore things that otherwise we might find very traumatic to deal with. I mean, it sounds like a brilliant book and it sounds very much like, um, you know, sisterhood is a sort of central theme to it and I want to talk to you a little bit about sisterhood especially as someone who you know has been um a wonderful friend to me and has definitely been someone that you know has been very massively supportive of me throughout my career and I think even the fact that you chose this book very very recently released and I know that that very much speaks to your I know what you are like in terms of women genuinely meaning the now kind of overused potentially um sort of um slightly 
almost cliche term women supporting women you're truly about it you really put your money where your mouth is and it's one of my favorite things about you so I want to talk to you a little bit about sisterhood why it matters why supporting women you know especially women of color in your case is something that you have been actively trying to do in your career and just signal boosting the work of women which is obviously what this podcast is all about I think Lullaby Beach has literal sisters in it yeah. and where sisters will go for each other and how how far sisters will go to each other. And, and you and I both have sisters and we know the the strength of those bonds. And I because I was not raised in my biological family, I think I've always understood that biology and family aren't the same thing. Like, you know, people say blood's thicker than water, but as an adopted baby, I know that that's not true. Mm. And it, I think it's made me understand that you can choose your family wherever you go. Because my family, they say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. But I know that's not true because my family did choose me as a baby. Mm. And I think I've always understood that wherever you go, if you've been adopted once, you can get adopted again. <laughs> you can just become part of other people's families and create your own chosen urban family. And so many people I know, especially if they go to the city, especially if they're outsiders in some way, if they're queer or they don't have a constant, close, reliable relationship with their own family, they do get chosen family. And I've always been great. You know, I live on the other side of the world for my family and I've always been, it's always been important to me to have around me to build those bonds and to behave. I find if you behave like family to somebody you just do become their family in a way. And so I think for me, that's what the women supporting women thing is about. And I, you've said such lovely things, which I'm very moved by. Mm. But I think I think the answer is, you know, if if my sister is in trouble, I don't just treat her like, you know, oh, this person's like texting me and is having a bad day and I could sort of help that person by texting back. I think I just act like that person is my actual sister and we've been raised together and go well. What what would I give that person? What would I give? What would I give this person if she were my actual sister? Well, that's what I'm going to give her because that's what she needs now. She needs an actual sister, and that I think makes feminism real. Um, it, and listen, you can't do that for everyone all of the time. You wouldn't have any other time in your day. But sometimes, you know, you you feel a kinship with somebody, or you feel like I know this person needs this right now, and it gives me a great joy and and warmth and peace to be there for the women around me and to do what I can when I can. And we've all got to set up boundaries and limits, of course, because you can't do everything for everyone all of the time. But I think the idea of self-care has sometimes crept into, you don't do things for other people because you've got to yeah. look after yourself. And it's like, yeah, of course, if that's what you need right now, but also caring for other people is very rewarding and it creates community. And so ask yourself, do I need self-care right now? Or does this person need my care? And can I have self-care the day after tomorrow? And can today, can I really be there for my sister? Um, another way in which you sort of have, you know, continually platformed and supported women is obviously through the Guilty Feminists, not just as panelists, but also... <laughs> By allowing women to be guilty feminists, essentially. So let's talk about how it begun and um, why you think it's been so successful. I think the guilty feminist is very successful largely because women are thirsty. And uh, we, there's not much designed for us and by us. If, if it is on the telly or, you know, through the radio, often it's been overly produced and overly shaped and uh, men have had a huge hand in it. And I think it's just an unadulterated space created by women for people, uh, created by women for women and people of minority genders. And it's a celebratory space. It's a space where you don't have to be perfect to be a force for meaningful change. We start with our I'm a feminist butts where we, you know, kind of open up and say, here's my, here's the way in which my values and my actions do not meet. And that's okay. It doesn't matter. But where it does matter, let's build muscle. You know, where it does matter, let's talk about it, put it on the table and get better. Let's work on it. Uh, we don't have to be perfect today. And I think one of the ways in which we do live in a cult is a cult of perfection through social media. That's got worse. Everybody else seems to be looking fabulous and doing fabulous things and succeeding the whole time. And actually saying, 
do you know what? I didn't watch that four-hour documentary on the suffragettes that I said I was going to watch. I watched uh, Say Yes to the Dress and I really enjoyed myself. And uh, But then I think sometimes there's a hidden feminism in those kinds of things. Uh, there's something we're being drawn to about the power of women. So I think cele- a celebratory space that's genuinely funny that allows people to go, I'm not perfect and yet I'm showing up and yet I want to be better. I don't want to be in a space that's just like, oh, uh, I'm, no, I'm not really very good at feminism, lol relax but I want to be in a space that says here's the ways in which I'm not perfect I'll never be perfect I'm going to die with a full inbox I have accepted that now yummy I know that I'm going to die with a full inbox I'm all right with it I'm all right with it so trying to kind of make it clear and be perfect it just fills up again you know when you email everyone back they email you back and it's back it's all back that's what happens it never goes away this is never going to end (laughs) The, the, there's clutter in my flat that I think, right, I've cleared it all out now. And then it's back. It's back. I take clothes that I no longer wear to the, to Oxfam. I come home. I swear they're back. They're back in my wardrobe. <laughs> I've, I took this jacket to Oxfam. It's, it's found so its triggering. way home. It's oh, never going to end. This pile of work, this this these these goals and aims and this nobility I'm striving for, It's ne- I'm never going to get there. But working towards it and being pleased with the progress I make I'm definitely a better feminist now than when I started the podcast mm. I'm so much a better feminist I have a great under, greater understanding a greater audacity to challenge a greater understanding of my own privilege I, I started the podcast to wallow in my own oppression and I've, I've learned more about my own privilege <laughs> than anything else and I'm definitely just I was going to say ballsier then that's an example uh I'm a feminist but ballsier why does that mean courage nonsense I'm definitely bolder and just not as bothered about what people want uh in terms of the way things have been done before and the audience have come with me they've listened with me and they've 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 contributed with me and the and the guests every guest I've had on every including you every co-host I've had on has brought something to that space so I feel very very lucky to have a space where I can shine a light on women who deserve a bright shiny light I love the fact that we have women on who are from all sorts of backgrounds communities you know we have incredible black and brown women uh, women with disabilities queer women it's women with masculine gender expression uh all sorts of brilliant people um, we had somebody come on the other day to talk about asexuality, which is something I didn't know anything about, really. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much. I had two elderly women who'd been code breakers in the Second World War. And most of their stories were, to be honest, were about nightclubs in the Second World War. It was fantastic. I couldn't have asked for anything more. It, they, we are just so lucky uh, to have this space. And I will never not be grateful that uh, we started this venture and so many women around the world, we've had 85 million downloads now. So many women around the world have, and people of minority genders and cis men have joined us uh, to discuss and to participate and to actually be active, to go out and change stuff, stuff. Our listeners go out and change stuff. We, we have projects that we do together and it's, it's remarkable. So your fifth and final book shall be, this week is Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. What is the book about and did any of it resonate with you personally? Yes, it really did. So Ghosts is about uh, a young woman dating right now. And I wanted to put it on the table as a book because the first books I chose were those traditional cornerstones of female reading. And I thought, actually, what I want to bring to the listeners and to you is something fresh and new and contemporary and relevant that I have read recently that I feel uh, gave me some epiphanies. And Ghosts is about a young woman dating in London who gets ghosted. And it's by the brilliant writer, Dolly Alderton. She's somebody who you and I both know. She's also wonderful fun on a night out. Uh, if you She's can hilarious. have a night, isn't she? <laughs> She's, if you can have a night out with Dolly Alderton, take that opportunity. Um, <laughs> I haven't actually yet, but it was at the women, it was funny enough at the women's prize, an event perhaps two or three years ago. 
I remember absolutely nothing about it, which says it all, but it was, she, all I remember, she was fantastic. And I remember saying to somebody, she's an absolute scream. I must get her drunk again and get myself drunk within that scenario. So yeah. She, she is fantastic. And she has, she's written, this is her debut novel. Her yeah. first book was a Sunday Times bestseller for ever and ever and ever. Uh, and that was about her own experiences of love. And this is a novel, this is a fictional book, mm. but it's about the experience of being left it's about the experience of being completely ignored and again I think this speaks to shunning for me because ghosting is a form of shunning and it's about a young woman in a relationship with a man who just disappears and just completely stops contacting her and what that experience is like but it's also about at the same time her father losing his memory because of dementia because of Alzheimer's and what it's like for somebody you know to start disappearing literally in some cases where he wanders off and also figuratively you know she's talking to him but it's 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 not like the experience of talking to him was and I think these are very uh important and relatable 21st century topics but again, to be explored through fiction, it, it was a real page turner. It was a really beautiful read. She's ever so funny, Dolly Alderton, but she's also uh, very poignant. And I think in some ways she's a modern day Jane Austen. And I think she writes about dating and manners and exactly. <laughs> women exploring their future without men and and uh, and with men and ultimately wanting love, but understanding that you yourself are a completely self-sufficient being and you don't need men. It's a lovely book. You read Ghosts, didn't you? I did read Ghosts. I love, I absolutely, like, as you said, Dolly is bloody funny. And I think what really kind of, I guess, resonated with me was just the situations that I suppose it very much is if you don't laugh, you will absolutely certainly cry. <laughs> so just certain yeah. bits that I read and just thought... I don't know. When you said that she's a modern day Jane Austen, I just, I was nodding along to the point that my, my neck nearly broke. Cause I was just like this, I'm sure that at the time um, women would have been reading Jane Austen and I don't know, it's just really typifying and capturing something in the time specifically, but also that it's just universal to women everywhere. And I feel that Ghost is the type of book that yes, it's very much of its time because, you know, we're talking about dating apps and ghosting, but like, Ghosting, I'm pretty sure people were writing letters during the war to boyfriends and at some point they just stopped responding and it's not necessarily because they'd died. It's, I'm sure ghosting has existed for centuries, just not in the digital sense. Well, Willoughby ghosts in uh, in Sense and Sensibility, doesn't he? <laughs> He's a ghoster. This is why I love you. <laughs> Willoughby the soldier. <laughs> just off he goes and he's just suddenly where where is he and he's not (laughs) writing back and it was easier to ghost in those days because nobody nobody had phones you were waiting even bloody nobody had facebook yeah you couldn't even stalk them but it was gossip was instagram then wasn't it oh my god it was sort of somebody oh well i saw him taking a turn around the pop room with um with miss milligan and there there you go Okay, I'm really waiting for the Netflix um, adaption because I know it's coming. But yeah, I think Ghost is something I can absolutely... There are a lot of books that are written in a time and it's kind of like of the time and that's it. But I do feel like... it. Just, to me, it was it was very universal and super, super funny and poignant because I interviewed her about it actually. And I remember sort of wondering how she was able to write about Alzheimer's so poignantly and what to me felt accurately and she did she did a lot of research but I don't know I just I thought it was amazingly done yeah there's something about it that I just really love thank you so much Deb we have unfortunately one last question and I'm not gonna lie to you is a very 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 difficult one yes go on which is what is your favorite book from the list and why okay because I'm the guilty feminist I think I get a guilty pick and a feminist pick (laughs) so my feminist pick has got to be Song of Solomon. It's far and away the best prose of any book I've ever read. It's just glorious. You will learn so much. You will empathise so much. And when Hannah Gadsby says story story holds our cure, I think she's talking about Toni Morrison. It's It's a way to live through and live vicariously and to connect in a way that that is difficult to connect because 
it's the past and uh, it's a way of living and a way of understanding our history and the history of white supremacy. So I, that's my feminist pick. My guilty pick is Helene Hanif's Underfoot in Show Business because that book just made me think, yeah, you can do it. And what if you're not successful? It doesn't matter. You're in the game. Just get out, live your life, be, be amongst it, get involved, have some fun, take some chances. Love it. Thank you so much, Deborah. I really feel like I'm the usher in a theatre that you've just come up to and said, I get two picks and I've somehow gone along with it. I don't know how, I don't know how I've ended up here, <laughs> but somehow it all checks out and works out. <laughs> I always do it whenever I get asked on, uh, you know, those things like the, you know, the Guardian say your cultural highlights. I always do a guilty pick and a feminist pick because I think... That's what I want to do. You know, I want to, I want to say this, these two things live inside of me and they coexist. Uh, so, you know, I feel like we should all be allowed a guilty pick and a feminist pick in life every day. We absolutely are, but do not tell the other guests because they're only allowed to pick one. <laughs> Look, if I have Thank to pick you. one, obviously it's Song of Solomon, but you know. Just <laughs> but you didn't. because you're Nobody reads uh, Helene Hanif. She's just joyful. She's joyful. Go and read her. I'm Yomi Adegake and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk where you can discover this year's 16 long-listed books covering both new and well-established writers and a wide range of genres. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.